God-man. So, Father, help us to see not just what happened, but why it happened and why it makes a difference in our life every day. Come, Holy Spirit, and do work in us. We need you this morning. For your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This year, October 31st, to be precise, marks the 500th anniversary of what's been called the Protestant Reformation, the wrestling away from, at that time, the incredibly corrupt Catholic Church of faith once proclaimed and passed down, now rediscovered through men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Hubmeyer and others who came before them and after. Now, to be fair to our Catholic friends, the Reformation sparked necessary reforms in the Catholic Church, and they cleaned up their act as far as corrupt behavior while not adjusting theology. But that was the essence of the Reformation, a difference in theology. You might say a rediscovery of the gospel. And if you had to say that there was one doctrine above all that took center stage during the Protestant Reformation, it would be the doctrine of justification. What does it mean to be right and just in the eyes of God? It's a legal term from the courtroom where a judge would declare someone to be right and just, not guilty, or the opposite. And if any culture gets the courtroom drama scene, it is the American culture. From Perry Mason to Matlock uh, to Boston Legal, Law and Order, L.A. Law. When my parents weren't watching, I'd sneak in and look at that, if you remember that show, the older people in the room. Uh, to later on, Judge Wapner and People's Court, Judge Judy and Judge Brown and Judge Sally Jackson Raphael and Dr. Phil, whoever. We understand courtroom drama. This today is courtroom drama. And what's happening on the local level is going to be amazing to see. But what's happening on the cosmic level, guys, if you get this, it is life-changing. It is life-transforming every single day. So Jesus is arrested. He is brought to the, high, the house of the high priest whom John identifies as Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the son-in-law of another well-known and respected high priest, Annas. Caiaphas himself was a high priest for about 19 years, where the usual term of service was four years. So this was a man who was well-respected, well-viewed by the, the local Jewish religious leaders as someone to entrust this position to. Now, together, Annas and Caiaphas, they were so respected as high priests, they became part of this group of men, select group of men known as chief priests, powerful and respected high priests. And together, with other elders and scribes, they made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were, was a body of ruling Jewish religious leaders put in place by the Romans, allowed to rule by the Romans, primarily over religious matters among the Jews. Romans didn't care about all these religious distinctions and religious laws and observances and feast days that the Jews cared about. As long as there was peace, the Romans were fine with you doing whatever you wanted to do religiously. And so they would handle most of the issues, especially religious laws among the Jews. And sometimes they would handle these capital punishment cases where someone would have done something that they felt was deserving of death. Now, they didn't have the right in and of themselves to carry out the capital punishment. They would have to hand that over to the Romans. But they could hear the matter and rule in the matter and say, yes, this person is guilty and deserving of death, death according to our laws. Usually, this will be done in a very public manner at a place called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone, right near the temple. Not in the house of the high priest in the middle of the night. 
The Sanhedrin was comprised of 71 members. You only had to have 23 to judge a capital case in place. And if they found someone guilty of a crime deserving death, there would be a second hearing the following day. Both hearings happening during the day on two consecutive days, never the day before a Sabbath and never during a festival. That in and of itself speaks to the fact that this whole thing is a sham. That that this is not right, what they are doing. You also see it from the language and the details, beginning in verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witnesses, uh, witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They were against him, they were against him, they were against him. As we know from the Gospel of Mark, all the way back to Mark 3, they have been plotting to kill him. Now we've got him, we need him dead. What can we do to make that happen? So let's find witnesses, let's find testimony against him. And the only thing that they can find two people to get close to cooperating is this claim of Jesus that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. The problem is he never said that. The closest he came to saying that was in John 2, 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Not, I will destroy it. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus never said he would destroy it. And while Jesus may have been prophetically pointing to the destruction of the temple that would come in 40 years, he was obviously pointing to a greater theological reality that he was the new temple, replacing the brick and stone temple. But if he had made that claim that he would destroy the temple, and if they could have gotten two or three witnesses to agree on all the details of the claim of Jesus, then he could have been arrested and tried and charged with inciting insurrection, inciting a rebellion to destroy this edifice called the temple. The problem is they couldn't get their lies to match. And they had to match, like down to the smallest detail. It couldn't just be like, okay, they got the main points, but some details were wrong. According to the Jewish law, according to the Mishnah, Jewish tradition about what was expected in the Sanhedrin, down to the smallest detail, the witnesses had to have cooperating stories. These guys are manufacturing testimonies and lies in an illegal trial for an obviously innocent man, but they will not budge on this. All the details have to match. If you're already doing evil, why have any sense of morality? Yet even evildoers have their own system of self-justification. So we have no qualms about killing an innocent man, but we have to follow all the rules of this legal proceeding. Illegal proceeding. Also, you see that Jesus' record is incredibly unblemished. You wouldn't have to go far to find two people who could be in full agreement that I am a sinner or that you are a sinner. Just go talk to my wife and kids. Two of them will be in full agreement that I have sinned in many ways. Yet, these people are lying. Jesus is so holy and above sin, they can't even get lies to stick against him. Finally, seemingly exasperated, the high priest turns to Jesus in verse 60. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus says nothing. 
he remained silent and made no answer. This is what we read earlier in 1 Peter 2, 23, the beginning of the worship gathering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It wasn't that the Sanhedrin was judging him justly. They were not judging him justly. It was God, the judge. This is also a fulfillment of the suffering servant song of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then you have this key exchange in verse 61. But he remained silent, made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, this is fascinating in the original language of the New Testament because blessed one literally means God's son. And the wording is not worded as a question. The question is implied, but in the original writing of the, of the, of the Greek language, it was written as a statement. In other words, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Is how you would read it. All of our English translations have supplied the question mark for us, but literally in the Greek it's a statement where he's saying, you are the Christ, God's Son. Mark puts a confession of the identity of Christ in the mouth of the highest ranking Jewish religious leader, one of the chief people responsible for his death. In statement form. You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God. Now this same Jewish religious leader, I didn't put this on the screen, over in John chapter 11, Caiaphas had already prophesied about the significance of the death of Jesus. In John 11, Caiaphas, verse 49, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, talking about this plot to kill Jesus and, and why it would be right or wrong. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas, unknowingly to himself, had already prophesied that the death of Jesus would be one man for a people, substitutionary, gathering a people together. Now he, unknowingly to himself, is giving us a confession of who Christ really is. And Jesus' response is even more incredible. Verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am. We have traced this theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, this idea of the messianic secret. That Jesus would uh, confront demons and demons would want to call out his identity and Jesus would tell the demons, shut up, hush, don't spread this information about me to anyone. Jesus would heal people and people would want to go tell people what Jesus had done for them and he would tell them to keep this quiet. Don't spread this information. And we've looked at this idea of the Messianic secret that the Jewish expectation of the Messiah is that he would come in military and political power to establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Romans. That's what they were expecting. A renewal of the kingdom of David from the Old Testament. But the surrounding nations would be conquered and, and Israel would once again be a shining light on the world stage and be wealthy and prosperous and successful. 
They didn't see, they had no concept of a Messiah who would come in power, but it would be power to lay down his life, to suffer and to serve. So to temper their expectations, he wanted the Messiahship aspect of his identity, but he kept secret so the crowd wouldn't be worked into a frenzy, grab swords and arms and follow him to march on Rome. It almost happened in John chapter 6. After he fed the 5,000, they were ready to make him a king. Let's keep the expectations of the Messiah down. Let's keep this a secret until now. Now the time of suffering has come. Now he can take on this mantle of, I am the Messiah, because now the Messiah will suffer. Now he will begin to pay the price for the sins of the nation. And so Jesus fully embraces this reality. I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One. He declares his identity here as the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I am the Christ. Jesus as God's Son is actually more harmful to him than the title of Messiah. Because to be called the Son of God is to be equal with God. The Son of a Father is to be equal with the Father. To have the nature, the character, the attributes of the Father. When you take on that identity among the Jewish people. That's how they understood it. So he is all in. Full affirmation of who he is. Jesus also referring to himself with his favorite title, Son of Man. Again, taking this from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is calling himself the son of man. And every time he does it, he's pointing to Daniel 7 and saying, that's me. That's who I am. I'm the one to whom, from whom the Ancient of Days gives this eternal, everlasting kingdom that rules over all the creation. He is this Son of Man. You will see Him seated in the place of honor at the right hand of power, coming with clouds of heaven. Don't think milky white fluffy clouds. Think of Shekinah glory of God clouds. Light that is so dense and thick and radiating the glory of God, it is as thick as clouds. This is as strong an affirmation from the lips of Jesus about who he is as anywhere in the Gospels. There are opponents of the Christian faith. You like to, they, they come out of the woodwork around Easter every year who like to say Jesus never really understood who he was. He was just a good man, a good teacher who uh, got caught up into this political scheme between the Jewish religious leaders and Pilate and unknowingly, unwittingly got himself put to death. His his followers loved him so much that they went back and said all these good things about him, but he never had a self-understanding of that this is who he was. So what do you do with passages like this? Some people say that they're not authentic, they didn't really happen, they were added later on by followers of Jesus. Except where were the followers of Jesus in this story? Peter's down in the courtyard denying. The rest of them are running away. One of them's naked running around the countryside. They're not in the courtroom. They they believe that one of the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin members, maybe Nicodemus the Pharisee, maybe Joseph of Arimathea, who later were followers of Jesus, were there in the courtroom and they reported on this and told us what happened in the courtroom. 
Whatever the case, this is an authentic understanding of Jesus about himself that he is claiming to be God's son. If true, he would be guilty, or rather, if not true, he would be guilty of blasphemy and deserving of punishment and even death. But if true, he will be deserving of worship and obedience. It really is C.S. Lewis's Lord Liar Lunatic paradigm. For Jesus to say this about himself, he's either certifiably crazy, he is a con man, or he's the Lord. That's the only options we have. The fact that Jesus and the religious leaders knew what he was claiming can be seen in the reaction of the religious leaders. Tearing their clothes, signs of despair, brokenness, shock, horror, outrage, accusing him of blasphemy, deserving of death, and and then openly insulting him, spitting on him, mocking him, covering his head with a cloak, punching him, and in a mocking way say, prophesy, who hit you? Who hit you, Jesus, if you're so great? Like, it's not bad enough that they're doing this to an innocent man who's committed no crime. But yet it's the God-man. And the trial continues. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea from the year 26 through 37 AD. He had the longest tenure of the 14 Roman governors of Judea, and he always had a troubled relationship with Jews. For instance, he introduced a bust of the Roman emperor into the Jewish military standards, thus violating their command to not have carved images of false gods, which the Romans believed about the emperor, that he was a god. A large group of Jews were so upset about this, they traveled 70 miles on foot to Pilate's house to have a nonviolent protest for five days. Pilate told his soldiers, just kill him thinking this would scare them away and they would go home. The Jews said, kill us. We'd rather you kill us than have this bust of a Roman emperor in our military standards. Paul's like, these people are crazy. All right, just send them away. I'll take off the bust. So he acceded to their demands. Later on, he used temple funds to build a 23-mile-long aqueduct to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. Great public work. Makes a huge impact on the city to be able to transport water that far. But he used temple funds. Not good. The Jews raise up. Pilate tells his soldiers to respond with non-lethal force. Some soldiers get carried away and a lot of Jews die. On a third occasion, mentioned in Luke 13.1, Pilate had a number of Galileans killed who brought offerings to Jerusalem. And finally, his stubbornness, his animosity with the Jews, and lack of ability to keep the peace with the Jews led to his removal by the emperor in AD 37 when he violently put down a Samaritan uprising. All of that to say this, Pilate is not to be a sympathetic figure. He's not innocent. Mark, a gospel written to Christians in Rome, probably paints the softest picture of Pilate. But this guy is an effective leader, a politician, and he is as calculated and scheming as the Jewish religious leaders. And so his interaction with Jesus starts with this political question. In verse 2, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, You have said so. 
Are you the king of the Jews? Not a religious leader, but a political leader. And the way, the way Mark wrote this is exactly the way he wrote the confession of Caiaphas, the high priest. There's no, there's no question in the original Greek. It's a statement. In other words, he's literally saying, you are the king of the Jews. You're the king of the Jews? An implied question. And Jesus' response is, of course, perfect. Well, that's what you say. Or, or, or maybe you would do well to consider that question. Jesus is perfectly ambiguous. Not a denial, not an affirmation. It's genius. But it's also instructive about our unique position that we have as Christians with political powers and governments. We recognize that God establishes governments and we are to obey them, but we also recognize that governments are not the ultimate authority. Which means there are times we do fall in line that's most of life and obey the governing authorities, but because the ultimate authority is God, there are times that we speak up against governing authorities. There are times we don't even obey their laws, because to obey their laws would mean we disobey the highest authority, who is God. Martin Luther King, in his letters from a Birmingham jail, perfectly illustrates this tension. When local white ministers were telling him that he shouldn't be protesting nonviolently, that he should obey the governing authorities, he writes this incredible letter to them, and in one part says this, One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. There's the tension. One who doesn't obey unjust laws, don't obey it, obey God, but you're also going to submit yourself to the penalty that the government imposes on you for breaking that unjust law. Our government comes to us one day and says, you must recognize and bless same-sex uh, relationships as marriage. Or you're going to lose your tax-exempt status as a local church. We're going to say, okay, take it. We're not doing it. Or we're going to fine you. Okay, fine us. We'll pay it. We're going to imprison you. Okay, imprison us. We're not going to do it. Because we are held accountable to a higher authority than the United States government of America. This is the tension that we live in as Christians. We do not obey unjust laws, but we submit to the penalty and punishment of the same government we are disobeying because we recognize God established the government. Jesus' Christianity alone presents this strange relationship with governments. We obey man unless obeying man moves us to disobey God. Now there's a longer conversation between Pilate and Jesus in John 18. Too long to get into today, but worth your attention in your own study. Pilate sits after Jesus' response, and he watches Jesus endure more accusations. Verse 3, and, it, and the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed, astonished, blown away, that Jesus would continue to endure these insults and accusations and respond with silence. Now, Matthew records that at some point in these proceedings, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, Have nothing more to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much in dreams today because of him. We don't really know what was going on with that. But somehow God revealed to her in dreams that Jesus was righteous and shouldn't be called guilty. Whatever effect that had on Pilate, we don't know. He continued with his trial. Verse 6. Now, at the feast... 
He used to release for them, talking about the Jews, one prisoner for whom the Jews, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted, but they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Some kind of tradition had arisen in this relationship between the Jews and the local governor that allowed him to pardon a prisoner during a festival. And there was an opportunity here with this man named Barabbas, whose whose name in divine irony means literally son of the father. Bar always means son, Abba means father. Mark includes a manuscript, I mean, Matthew includes a manuscript note in Matthew 27, 16, that there are some manuscripts that have Barabbas' name as Jesus Barabbas. Jesus is a very common first century name. Literally, his name could have been Jesus, son of the Father. And so Pilate is asking the crowd, who do you want me to release to you? This Jesus, son of the Father, or this Jesus, son of the Father? And the crowd, encouraged by the religious leaders, call out for Barabbas, the rebellious murderer and insurrectionist, to be released. Pilate insists on the innocence of Christ, but the crowd of Jews whom Pilate does not have a good relationship with calls out the more for Jesus to be crucified and Barabbas to be killed. Matthew records the famous hand-washing scene and the bloodthirsty crowd like this. Pilate said to them, Matthew 27, And what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So after two trials, there was also a, a, a viewing before Herod. Jesus and Luke tells us Jesus was brought before Herod. Herod, who had beheaded John the Baptist, Herod wanted to see Jesus do wonders and miracles and hear him speak. And Jesus, is, I mean, Jesus gave him nothing; just, just stared him down. But after these trials, you have Jesus declared innocent by all. Sent off to be crucified as a criminal. While one who with no doubt guilt to his name was set free. As though he had not committed a crime. And this is the essence of justification. The Heidelberg Catechism written about 450 years ago to unite Christians in doctrine in Germany asked this question. How are you righteous before God? How are you just before God? And the response is the essence of justification. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. 
even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, or of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift with a believing heart. This is justification. Jesus, the sinless one, was condemned and declared guilty so that you and I, the guilty ones, could be declared not guilty even though we are. We are set free while he is enslaved. We are Barabbas. Set free even though we deserve to be punished and set free not with our sinful record but with his sinless record. So that in the courtroom of God, the judge of all of the universe forever declares us just, righteous, holy, blameless. Luther calls this doctrine the doctrine in which the church stands or falls false. Luther also taught us that justification by faith alone is hard to accept and hard to hold on to. In his commentary on Galatians, he wrote this, this doctrine cannot be beaten into our ears too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is no one who takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all of his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh and disobedient to the Spirit. If you hear us talk about Jesus dying for our sins, making us right before God through the gospel, by grace, through faith, 10,000 times, know that we need to hear it 10,000 more times. It's not enough. Because we are so sinful and so prone to fall back into self-justification and not embrace and experience and enjoy justification through Christ. We are all prone to be consumed with this desire to justify ourselves so that we are in charge of how we look in the eyes of God or how we look in the eyes of others or how we look in our own eyes. And the problem with self-justification, not only is it never works, but you are always on trial. You live life on trial. Have you ever been on trial? Like everybody in this room, maybe not in a courtroom setting with a judge and a jury or anything like that, but everyone in this room has stood before a governing authority in your life, either guilty or presumed to be guilty, with charges against you. An, an accuser, which may be yourself because you sin, or maybe somebody else. And the judge has to decide, are you guilty or not guilty? We understand what it's like to be in this setting. It's not enjoyable if you are guilty. It's less enjoyable if you're innocent. We're more prone to scream and shout and defend ourselves against injustice that we're experiencing. It's very hard to sit there and say nothing. 
And when we live this life of self-justification, we live on trial. We're always facing accusations from ourselves, from others, from our enemy, about how we fall short. We're always in defense mode. We're always needing to explain ourselves. We need to make sure other people understand what we did or why we did what we did. We want to make sure others see us a certain way. We're never at peace or we're never free to just rest in the justification that we have received from God through Christ. I'm on trial as a father, our husband. And so I better make sure others know how good of a father and a husband I am. Or you're on trial as a mother, our wife. You better post pictures of, of you being awesome. Or your kids being awesome. So they know how awesome you are as a mother and a father, a husband and wife. I'm on trial as a Christian in the age of radical. David Platt's book. Great book. Wholeheartedly recommended. But every dollar we spend is scrutinized. It has to be explained. Because if you go on vacation, that's 20 kids in another country that don't have water or access to life-saving medication. You sure you should go on vacation? You sure you really care about people? Are you sure you're radical enough? You bought a new car? Yep, you don't really care about poor people. You can just keep duct-taping that old thing together. We're on trial with our gospel fluency and gospel centrality. Can I say the words gospel, gracious, grateful, and glorifying enough to prove to everyone how truly gospel-centered I am? I'm going to try to justify myself as a hard worker. How are you doing? Man, I'm so busy, I don't have time to have this conversation. I don't have time for anything because we're working so hard. I need to make sure everyone knows I'm not wasting life or giving my life to frivolous pursuits. And you're the same. So if we do something that seems frivolous, we have to throw in a little comment. Just taking a brain break. And on and on we go. We have to be healthy, so we're on trial for what we eat. Had to make sure everyone knows what we eat, how much we eat, and if it's devoid of carbs, fat, processing, or flavor. I don't even enjoy food anymore. Just eat it raw in misery. We put ourselves on trial to make sure everyone knows how broken we are, how transparent we are. Because if we don't reveal our transparency and our brokenness and our sinfulness, then people may think I'm self-righteous or some kind of happy, clappy, fake Christian. So i got to make sure we, we throw out enough of our sins. Am I doing enough so people think I'm really broken? We have to be funny, witty, sarcastic. We have to listen to the right music, wear the right clothes, support the right businesses, like the right things on social media, be liked by a certain number of people, be liked or followed by a certain number of people, or the right people to make sure I know and everyone knows I am good. I am just. I am pleasing and acceptable. And the problem with self-justification is it's never enough. You can never do enough. And we live in fear because we're not measuring up and who will find out and what will happen to me when they find out that I'm not as awesome as I'm trying to make you think I am. Or we live in guilt because we keep failing. Or we live in shame because all we see when we look in the mirror is a failure and letting other people down. Guilt is I have broken a law. Shame is I have let someone down. I have broken a relationship. Guilt is transactional, and when we live a life to work hard enough to justify ourselves through our actions, you're going to fail. Guaranteed. You're, you're never going to do it right enough, long enough, good enough. You will not get it all right. And so you feel guilty, and then you work harder to overcome your failure, or you just quit 
and indulge, which brings more guilt. Shame is not always bad. Sometimes we talk about shame as being a bad thing, but there is a shame that is good. Being shameless is actually worse. If you have sinned against someone, you should feel shame because there's a break in the relationship. The problem is when shame isn't based in reality. You keep imagining that you've let people down, your relationship is torn, and it really hasn't. The the shamed person is always hiding in fear because other people will really know who they are and how awful they are. The shamed person is always apologizing because they're afraid that they have failed you all the time, even though they haven't. They're fine. The shamed person thinks others always see them in the worst light. When we live to justify ourselves, we ride this carousel of fear, guilt, and shame, and we are in bondage because we will never be good enough to declare ourselves right. Or on our good days, when it does seem we have it all together, people are impressed with us, we are impressed with ourselves, the problem is we have to go to sleep and wake up for the next day. The next day is never as good as the day before when you have that kind of day. You have to do it all again. Everyone in this room, probably, would affirm that Jesus and his righteousness and his death and sacrifice is what makes us right and just in the eyes of God. But are we experiencing the freedom and peace that comes with this justification? Is it flavoring every aspect of our life? You have expectations in your job. Most of the time you meet those expectations. Maybe even you exceed those expectations. But your boss comes to you one day and asks, why do you get this done? Your response to that question reveals a lot about how much you live in self-justification. Because either you got it done and it's their fault and you are quick to point that out. Or you didn't get it done and you start blaming. Well, you know, you didn't really tell me. I didn't know you really wanted me to get it done. You know, this is how I grew up. This is what happened to me. My dad didn't love me. My mom didn't love me. I have all these reasons why I didn't get it done. Being set free in the doctrine of justification is simply to, to own it. Because you've already been declared right by the God of the universe in his courtroom. And so whatever the circumstances are for the things that you fail to do, you can live with that. Maybe you do lose your job. Maybe you need to lose that job. But your Father in Heaven loves you and has another job for you. Or maybe you learn from your mistakes and you grow and you mature. And you demonstrate humility as you trust Him. And you're not afraid of man and what they say about you. Are we experiencing the freedom and peace that comes with justification? Is it translating how you see to how you see yourself? How you're seen by others? If you've been declared not guilty in the courtroom of God for all of eternity because of your union with Christ by grace through faith, why do you live on trial? Why do you keep accusing yourselves? Why do you keep allowing the accuser to haul you back into the courtroom? I mean, no doubt it happens because we keep sinning. But His grace and forgiveness are readily available to cleanse us and renew us time after time after time. Why do we run back to the courtroom and not run to Jesus for a fresh cleansing? Do you see yourself truly not guilty in the eyes of God? Do you feel the freedom of your chains and shackles being broken off of you and you walk out of the courtroom as a free man? 
Do you feel that in the deepest part of your being? This joy. Can you put yourself in the shoes of Barabbas, locked up, facing punishment and death, and along comes one who is innocent and lovingly, willingly takes your place, and you go free? You're expecting to die because you have committed a crime, but now you are set free. We don't know what happened to Barabbas. I'd love to believe he understood what happened and came to faith in Christ. This is the joy of freedom because of God's justification of us. This is a red and Andy at the end of Shawshank Redemption, walking on the, the beaches of the Pacific Ocean in Mexico. The scene that, if I remember right, is wordless, but it, you just want to go on forever. Freedom. This is, this is Sauron and Mordor being defeated and Frodo and Sam back reunited again. The quest is over. There's freedom. And there's joy. Because we're done. We're done. The trial for your standing before God is done. You will not stand trial anymore. God has declared you in Christ just, free. Are you trapped in these cycles of self-justification or are you living in the joy and freedom of being declared by God as not guilty because Jesus took your place? Some simple ways to know this. I took this from Tim Keller. He's about to retire. He doesn't care. If you're living in the freedom of justification, you will, number one, not feel superior to anyone or any group of people. Self-righteousness dies. And the groups of people that we tend to look at, we're most tempted to think of ourselves as superior to, dies as well. When we live in the freedom of our justification, we realize that Christ took our place in the courtroom of God Not because we're smarter, not because we're wealthier, more educated, not because we're more conservative or funny or white or any other ethnicity, not because we've been a victim in the past. He took our place in the courtroom of God, stood in our stead, was punished for our sins simply because of His grace. Nothing in us deserved it. Nothing, nothing in us makes us superior to anyone else, even the fact that you've received salvation by grace through faith in Christ. You're not superior to people now because you're a Christian. And understanding this justification through Christ alone and God's grace sets us free from ever looking down on anyone, individually or a group of people, because of any external or internal reason. And as Christ laid down his life to sacrifice and serve anyone and everyone, so I can lay down my life. And there's no shut off from the gospel for anyone, no matter how different they are than me. So check your heart. How often do you feel yourself looking down at other people? It's a good indicator of how much you are enjoying and experiencing the freedom of your justification. Secondly, if you're experiencing this freedom, you will forgive those who have wronged you. You take yourself out of the judge's seat. You let go of the bitterness. And it's not because they have deserved it or because they have earned your forgiveness. It's not because they will ever repent or you will ever be reconciled to them. But simply because you have been forgiven much, you forgive much. That's it. Ephesians 4.32 
We forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. Because you stood before the God of the universe condemned. And he could have held a grudge against you for your sin, yet willingly, lovingly forgave you in Christ. Therefore, you are free to forgive anyone and everyone and not hold a grudge against anyone who wrongs you or has wronged you. This doesn't mean there will be reconciliation in the relationship. Sometimes the damage is so bad there doesn't need to be reconciliation or sometimes they're dead. It can't be reconciliation. You no longer wish them harm or passively, aggressively cheer when harm comes to them because you have set them free in your heart. This is so crucial to who we are as the forgiven ones. If you can't do this or refuse to do this, it's probably one of the greatest indications that you've never truly received the forgiveness of God's grace. Read Matthew 18. The more you enjoy and walk in the freedom of being forgiven and right before God in Christ, the more you let go of bitterness and grudges against the wrongs you've experienced and you share freely His grace and forgiveness with others. And then lastly, if you're experiencing this freedom and your justification in Christ, you no longer judge yourselves. You will no longer put yourself on trial. I'm not good enough, smart enough, funny enough, good-looking enough, successful enough, hard-working enough. No one likes me. No one loves me. I'm not who I wished I would be at this stage in life. My life is a failure. I'm a failure. On and on we go, listening to the voice of self-condemnation. And what does God say about you? What does God think about you? How does He see you? In Christ, you were on trial as a condemned, guilty person, only deserving His wrath and condemnation. And Jesus steps in, takes your place, so that Romans 8.1 becomes your reality. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more trial for you. You are free. Not guilty, even though you're guilty. Free. So if God, who could rightly put you on trial for the sins that we still commit, never will again, why put yourself on trial? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, I don't really care if you judge me or any human court judges me. Now, we get that attitude in our culture. There's a lot of people who live like that. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm going to do what I want to do. But then Paul adds this. I don't even judge myself. Now, that's life-changing. I don't put myself on trial and condemn myself. He goes on. He says, I have a clear conscience. Again, not difficult for this to happen. Ted Bundy, the Unabomber, the hijackers of 9-11, all of them had clear consciences. That's not a hard thing. That by itself isn't enough. But then he says this, this doesn't justify me. I don't know if anything I've done wrong And I'm not judging myself, but that doesn't get me off the hook. What gets me off the hook? The last phrase, it is the Lord who judges me. And what has he said about us? 
We are free to not see ourselves as superior, free to forgive, free to not put ourselves on trial and not judge ourselves because we've already been judged by the Lord. And in Christ, he has declared you for all of time and eternity just, righteous, holy, blameless. You are not condemned. You are free to go. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, right now advocating for you. And every time we fail, he's saying, that one's covered too. That one's covered too. That one's covered too. This is freedom and joy of justification before God. William Fenner put it like this. As we sin daily, so he justifies daily. And we must daily go to him for it. Justification is an ever-running fountain. And therefore, we cannot look to have all the water at once. Father, we are grateful for this grace and mercy that would look at us sinful people and declare us right in your eyes even though we still sin. God, I ask that this would not only bring salvation to anyone in this room who needs salvation, but it would bring joy and freedom and hope to all of us. Let us see it. Let us believe it. Let us live in it. Let us be this kind of people who come to drink deeply from the well that is Christ every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to respond this morning in repentance and faith. If you need someone to speak to about that,